You may be seated. Um, if you if you have uh, your device or your Bible, we're going to be in Acts chapter 16 in just a minute, so you can you can find it. Uh, let me just kind of say a couple of things uh, to you and welcome those that are watching online. It's a great alternative to have uh, uh, to be able to watch online and. Um, like we were just curious where everybody's watching from today. Um, it's not that we're going to laugh if you're watching from a strange place. We just want to know uh, that's going on. Jordan, you getting married? That's exciting. That's exciting. Uh, uh, Jordan's engaged to be married. What's the date? August 30th. Okay. Okay. Well, that's good. And and uh, in the first service, uh, we had a little fella, David Logan, that um, he was born five months ago. And this was his first time to church. Now, five months ago is when everything shut down. This is the first time I've, I've seen him today. And he came to first service. And, uh, you know, it just uh, you want to know what five months looks like? That was five months. He walked down, he spoke, and, uh, it was, it was really good. No, uh, but it was good. Five months. It's just, it's just crazy. And we don't know everything. We don't know what's happening in the days ahead, you know, and, and, uh, but we're, we're so glad we're able to lift up Jesus Christ. Um, let me give you a thought as we get into this word today because it's, it's very pertinent to what we're going through, what we're walking through right now. Imagine that there is a sailing vessels and um, they're in the Atlantic or whatever, Harvard or whatever, and a storm is coming in. And uh, they see that storm and it's uh, going to be uh, a horrendous storm that's coming. And what they do is the, the guy that drops the anchor has dropped the anchor. And all the rest of the crew are very fearful and they're, they're looking at the storm and they're saying that storm's gonna uh, destroy the ship. It's, it, it's gonna batter. It's gonna, we're all gonna drown. And the guy that's in charge of the anchor said, no, the anchor will hold. They said, no, all we see is the chain. We don't know if the anchor's gonna hold. The anchor will hold. But, but the wind and the storm, we're, we're seeing everything that's going around us. The anchor will Hold. Sure enough, the storm comes. Yes, it's rough, but the anchor holds. What I want to say to you today is, with these storms, the anchor will hold. And, and people are saying, well, I don't, I don't see everything. All I see is the, the division in our country. All I see is the, the storms of, of the virus. The anchor will hold. I promise you. And it doesn't mean we won't go through hard times. I just want you to know the anchor will hold. In Acts chapter 16, we're going to uh, be looking at this today. It's let me let me give you some build up before we're going to start reading in verse 22 in just a moment, okay? So here's the background. Paul and Silas and and Luke have now come into Europe for the first time. Okay, they had been in all of the Middle Eastern area and Asia and that kind of stuff. They now are coming to Europe for the first time. And the first convert in Europe is a lady by the name of Lydia. Lydia, she was a a fluent lady 
but she gives her life to Jesus Christ. She's the first convert in all of Europe. So many of you that have European descent in this room, hey, you can look back to Lydia. She was the first. But uh, what happens is, is well, Paul and Silas are in Philippi, this city. Um, they are making their way to prayer one day, okay? Now, let me give you a little background about Philippi. Philippi was a mini Rome. That's just the way to look at it. When, when they built these cities, it was a mini Rome. And it was the gateway to Europe. It was uh, uh, the roads that everything would take you on into Europe. So it was a great route to go on. So, But yet, Philippi was a little Rome. That meant pagan worship was huge. That meant that uh, emperor worship was huge. That meant that the hedonistic part of that, uh, very immoral in so many ways, that was part of what was going on. Prejudice, you talk about prejudice... Uh, Claudius in Rome, the emperor had just kicked, he was kicking the process of kicking all the Jews out of Rome itself. And so there was very much a prejudice system, a racial divide that was happening in Philippi, uh, very humanistic. Uh, all of these things were going on in Philippi, okay? So Lydia has come to Christ. She's the first. And they're making their way one day to an area of prayer. Luke and Paul and Silas and, and, uh, probably some of these ladies and they're gonna be praying. Well, what happens is, is there's this young girl who's demonized, okay? She's, uh, uh, got a demonic uh, influence in her life and she is actually through this that, uh, she can like predict the future, tell you your horoscope kind of thing, okay? And so these guys would use her to make money, you know, is be like, hey, come let this young lady tell you your future and this kind of stuff. And they're making money off of this demonic uh, young lady. So what what happens is, is she sees Paul and Silas coming in. And what she does is she begins to scream behind them, not a shriek uh, uh, kind of scream. But this is what she is saying. She said, uh, these men are servants of the most high God. Who proclaim to you, the scriptures say the way of salvation. Literally, there's no the in it. They're saying a way of salvation. Now, we think, oh, that's not that bad. No, it was, it was not attracting. It was detracting. And so after a while, the Bible says that Paul was grieved in his spirit. He turns around and all the authority of Christ in him, he speaks to that demonic, uh, young lady speaks to the demonic uh, influence in her life and what he does is he he uh, by the authority of jesus casts that thing aside so now she's in her sane right mind no longer giving horoscopes the future this kind of stuff so this is the situation she is in so these businessmen who owned her were making money off of her realize they can't make money anymore so what they do is they turn paul and silas over to the magistrates those are in charge now this was a mistake for them to do that because uh, Paul's a Roman citizen. They don't know it. We'll get to that in just a second. But uh, they they are going to turn them over to the magistrates. And, uh, and that's where we're going to pick it up in verse 22. See the rest of the story. Here we go. Verse 22. It says, the crowd 
joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Now, let me let me stop here just a moment. So keep your device with you uh, as we as we walk through this. Notice what it says, the crowd. Now, the crowd is not always right. Okay? The crowd is not always right. The crowd usually turns into what? Mob rule. We're, we're seeing this in our country right now. Uh, protesting is one of the greatest gifts we have as a country. In other words, we are able to question anything. That's perfectly good. But when that protesting turns into mob rule, now we got a problem. And that's this. This crowd has, has so uh, been enraged by these businessmen, so they are now demanding that the leadership do something. Now, so what does the leadership do? The leadership rips their garments off and begins to beat them. Now, the crowd has so messed with them, they do not realize that Paul is a Roman citizen, and you can never beat a Roman citizen. And so they have stepped out. See how the crowd can rule and lead you into the wrong thing? And that's exactly what happened uh, with them. They, the magistrates were intimidated by the crowd, and this is what was going on. But what they did with them is, in verse 24, they have the jailer put them in the inner prison and, and bound their feet, they're chained in that inner prison. What is the inner prison? It's the dungeon of the dungeon. It's the darkest place. It is that inner, uh, filthy inner prison, and they cannot move. They're chained right in that area. Probably little maneuvering ability. They're with other prisoners down there, and that's where they're put to rot and, until they rot before the magistrates again. Now... Let me, let me address something here. Just because your body is imprisoned doesn't make you a prisoner. Be, because Paul and Silas were as free as anybody, they just were bound up. And, and the, in fact, the one who is truly imprisoned is going to be the jailer, we're going to see in just a few minutes. So, Listen, here, here's the reason I want to come with this. I, I think that many have allowed this time of isolation and quarantine and virus and division in our nation to become a bondage for them. They are bound up by fear. They are bound up by hopelessness. And what has happened is, is that, I mean, this is believers. And I see that they, they are given into this fear. Now, caution. Yes. Obsessed with fear. No. Because that imprisons you. And Paul and Silas are a beautiful picture of even though they're bound up physically, they're not imprisoned. They're still free. But let's look what happens with them in verse 25. It says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. About midnight. Let's talk about that a minute. Midnight, what? Midnight is the witching hour, right? It's the darkest part of the night is what people think about. When you talk about midnight, 
Things can't get any worse. It, it's just devastating at that time, like the old hee-haw. If it weren't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. That's what midnight, darkest time is all about. And this is where Paul and Silas were. They were in the midnight time of their lives. They were imprisoned. They had been beaten. They were physically uh, not in very good shape, obviously. But what were they doing? They were singing hymns at midnight. I know many people think that we're in the midnight hour currently as a nation and as a world. We we see uh, the virus uh, peaking and it's created isolation and fear and doubt. We see division in our country politically, economically, racially. We see moral decay that is there. We see spiritual apathy has crept in. And so we we think as a nation we are at our midnight hour. But let me tell you, God is involved in the midnight hour, just like he was involved with Paul and Silas. Because you see, midnight is not only the closing of a day and the darkest moment, midnight is the birthing of a new day. And we as followers of Jesus Christ have to understand that that God is birthing a new thing. Do we see it all? No. But the anchor will hold. In fact, for this jailer... This midnight hour was going to be his transformation of life eternally. And and notice what they were doing. They were praying and singing hymns. The dark hour made their songs more special. The other prisoners, it says, were listening. And the Greek word for listening here means they were listening with pleasure. Like you were listening to a symphony or a concert or something. You were listening with pleasure. So these other prisoners are watching these two beaten men sitting there in chains. And they're praying and they're singing at the midnight hour. And these guys are listening with pleasure. Paul and Silas were not whining. They were not complaining. They were not barking about their rights. They were addressing the God of all creation. In their brokenness, they were becoming fine wine that was refreshing others. And Paul and Silas, hear this, were modeling what they were teaching these young disciples. And what they were doing is, is they were living out in a perfect picture what they had been teaching about the life of Christ. You will suffer. You will go through things. But this is what they were doing. They were becoming incredibly fine wine at that moment. Now, let's look at what happened. Verse 26. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone bonds, everyone bonds were unfastened. Now, what happened, this, the way I look at it is this. God moved and shook the earth for one guy to get saved. Let me tell you, God can do it. This earthquake came. God moved the earth to save this one man. And this is the way I look at it. Hear, hear me out here. Simple prayers and praise in difficult times led to a shaking that affected everyone. Just imagine 
if the church of Jesus Christ in this midnight hour were praying and singing hymns at midnight, would, would the world stand up and take notice of what is taking place? A great earthquake came. And then look at verse 27. When the jailer, who was the true prisoner in the story, as far as I'm concerned, when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Now, the jailer, who God moved the earth for so that he could get saved, he's about to take his life. Because you see, the penalty of the jailer would be the penalty of whatever those prisoners were. And he just assumed they all left. And uh, the reason I think he was imprisoned more than anybody else First of all, his conscience was seared. He could beat innocent men and still go to bed at night. His conscience was seared. But the other thing was, he was the true prisoner. He he was full of fear at this moment in what took place. And notice what Paul and Silas did. It says, Paul cried out with a loud voice. In other words, they cared so deeply for this jailer that had beat them and put them in the inner prison, that they wanted to spare his life because they saw him as the one in bondage. They did not see him as the enemy, but a man that was bound up. And how many times do we see other flesh and blood as the enemy instead of the true enemy? Believers must be lovingly crying out so that many who are lost and in bondage can hear the truth. You see, that's what Paul is doing here. He cares so deeply for this guy that he's crying out to him, don't harm yourself. And we are called to do that in this day. But look what he did. He came and he fell and he was trembling and he fell down before Paul and Silas. This is the way I look at it. I want you to hear this. He saw the awe of God. I'm afraid that we live in a day where we don't see the awe of God anymore. We see the awe of technology. We see the awe of what man can do. But we live in a day of famine, of seeing the awe of what God can do. And he fell down and he trembled before Paul and Silas. Why did he do that? He had just seen the mighty power of God. In the earthquake? Yes. But the greater miracle were guys singing hymns after they'd been beaten unjustly in a prison. And they saw, he saw the awe of God and he knew his life was toast at that moment. And this is what he does. Look at verse 30. This is the crux. He said, then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? It wasn't like, how do you spare my life? What must I do to be saved? Once he witnessed the awe of God, he knew that he was a done-in man, and these guys had the answer, and he had to find the answer. And this is the way I look at it. He desired salvation more, more than the comfort of an earthly life. What is saved 
saved is that forgiveness, it's the, the reestablishing of that relationship back with the Heavenly Father. It's finding that freedom even in the midst of chaos that God can bring. And notice verse 31, this is the answer. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and your household. Believe. Believe. Not not a head knowledge. That's not what this word means. It means to cast your weight upon. To put your faith and trust upon. In other words, with Jesus Christ... You put your faith and your complete life into his hands and not into your hands. See, most of our struggles, uh, I tell you, this is just confession time. Uh, I did not think I was a control freak until this virus hit. And then all of a sudden, when you're out of control, you're sweating all the time thinking, who's in control? And God's in control. And yet, here, here is the answer Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Cast yourselves upon Christ. Put your hope and ultimate trust in Christ and you will be saved. You will find forgiveness. You will find freedom. You will find true life. And they spoke the word of uh, of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. Look at verse 33. And he took them the same hour of the night and he washed their wounds and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and he set food before them and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. What was the sign that he had been transformed? Well, there's four things that happened in his life. Number one, there was repentance and obedience. He followed the Lord in baptism. He knew this was a step of obedience to to totally uh, uh, identify with Jesus Christ. That's what he did. The second thing he did was he served them. Conversion led to service, and this will always happen. He washed their wounds. He fed them. And notice what it says in verse 34. He rejoiced. You know, we don't know what happened the next day to this jailer. He still may have lost his life, but he could rejoice in the midst of this time. And then last of all, this I love this, his whole household was transformed. Now, I don't believe because the jailer made a confession that automatically brought salvation to the rest of the household, but him being the patriarch and the influence of the family, he came to Christ, thus it led the rest of his family to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Here's the so what today. I have a couple of statements that I want to make, and you can see them on the board. Number one is this. How we handle the midnight hour speaks to others. How we handle currently the midnight hour we have as a nation will speak loudly to people. It's not going to be legislated. We have a voice. But yet, how are we living? Are we uh, walking in fear? Are we walking in faith? Are we whining? Or are we becoming wine? That will refresh others. People, hear this, people will seek out Jesus by the way we react to the midnight hour. I really believe that. If the church believers in Jesus Christ are no different, then that's wrong. 
The second thought is this. These times we are living in are strange. None of us have ever been here before. These times are strange, but a new day is coming. If the midnight is truly here, a new day is coming. God is about to birth a new thing. It's going to be a new day of personal growth for us. And it's going to be a new day of revival, I believe, for his church. But the last statement I want to make to you is this. And this concerns me. Have we lost literally the ability for a lost world to still ask questions? Does the world look at us and say, oh, what must I do to be saved? You've got something I don't have. Is that what we're, they're asking today or we've lost the ability for them to ask that question? I'm going to end this message with a history lesson, not to bore you, but I think it's important because many people think this is the worst time our nation has ever been. We, we think that, uh, we think that over 2000 years as a nation, this has got to be the worst it's ever been. You know, that's not true. In fact, in our nation, there have been many what they call great awakenings. These are spiritual revival times that affected all of the known United States at the time. There was the first great awakening that happened in 1734 uh, to about 1743. A guy by the name of Jonathan Edwards was preaching what what they were discovering is many people had lost their spiritual hunger. And Jonathan Edwards spoke and, and through the prayers of what took place, God moved in a mighty way. People got saved. Uh, the nation turned again. And then there was the second great awakening that began in 1800. There was the businessmen's revival that started in New York in 1857. There was the Civil War revival which lasted from 1861 to 1865 as people cried out to God. There was post-World War II revivals. There was others that took place in our nation uh, along the way. Every great awakening, you've got to hear this. If If you're sleepy, you need to wake up and hear this. Every great awakening came at a midnight hour for our country. I want to talk to you briefly about the Second Great Awakening. The Second Great Awakening actually started in 1800. It was going to last close to 50 years in what took place. But but in 1800, you got to get the climate of our country. We had just come out of the Revolutionary War, and how we won, historians still don't know, other than the providence of God. We still, we were a fledgling nation that we were still under the threats of war. We had superpowers around us that threatened us. Our economy was near bankruptcy. We, we tried to export things, but when we would export things back to Europe across the Atlantic, we were greeted with French and uh, British pirates. So they decided to go the south route uh, towards Africa. 
And as they went the south route, there were Muslim pirates that they were facing that would take the stuff and hold it ransom until money was paid. And so much of our indebtedness came from paying ransoms for things that we were sending out. It was a time of real estate collapse. It was a time of plagues and famine. The yellow fever had hit our country very, very bad. There were so many national doubts of what was happening. The Enlightenment was happening in France and in Europe, and that was being transferred here. That was very atheistic in his approach. Uh, there was social unrest. There, there was something entering into our country and under our churches called universalism, which watered down the gospel. There was political um, uh, rancor. Nasty elections were taking place. In fact... In uh, the, one of the elections, John Adams was running against Thomas Jefferson for president. Thomas Jefferson was so evil thought of that a group of Christians decided if they could mobilize Christians to pray for Thomas Jefferson, that they believed he was so much the Antichrist or acquainted with the Antichrist that his being elected president would hasten the return of Jesus Christ. This was what was going on in the elections. There was coarse sensuality that was taking place. On the college campuses, anti-Christian movements had come. Churches were empty, and we were also accursed with one of the things which was huge was slavery. And this was what was taking place during that time. What happened is, is people were exiting out of the churches um, in mass numbers. Pastors became obviously very concerned. And as they began to pray, they began to look back at what created the first great awakening. And they saw that it was birthed at a desperation of people praying unto God, sharing the true gospel, and seeing God move in an incredible way. They began to do that. They began the best they could to mobilize what was happening in our country among Christians. In a place known as Cane Ridge in Kentucky, they had gathered and they said that they had about 20,000 plus Christians of different persuasions, different streams that had come together out there. And they began to pray and they began to prepare their hearts and repent to take communion together. And God's spirit fell among those people. And they said that out of that revival, that it lasted for about 50 years. Forty plus years of God just moving. Millions were saved. Millions came to a personal relationship with Christ. It galvanized our population, bringing people together. Tens of thousands of churches were birthed. Hundreds of denominations and mission agencies were birthed. Hundreds of colleges and universities came about. Hospitals came into being. Modern missions as we know it came into being. And also, it was the birth of the abolition movement that would take away, eventually, slavery from our nation. But it also, many scholars say that the spiritual overflow of what happened in that second, second great awakening, we still are beneficiaries of today. The question that we have to ask ourselves as followers of Jesus Christ, is this. If God did it, can he and will he do it again? 
I'm afraid sometimes the church has gone to sleep. And we have lost the vision of what God can do. I'm here to challenge us and challenge us deeply to answer the question, have we lost what it takes for a lost world to ask us how to be saved? It's just not happening. I wonder sometimes if we're not barking for our rights more than letting ourselves be put in prison at midnight. And God, we're going to sing to you. We're going to pray to you because it's only through you. It's not going to be legislated. It's only going to come for you pouring your spirit out upon us. I wonder. I wonder if then this day God has allowed a midnight hour because he's about to birth a new day.